Uh, you can pray for me this morning because I've never felt so unprepared in my life as I do right now. So I'm all over the place. I haven't. Uh, it's just been a very busy week, and these messages are taxing, taxing. So just pray for me. We'll trust the Lord to use it. I want to finish up the message to the church at Sardis this morning. Uh, we got through um, the first three verses of chapter three. And I'm going to try to wrap up with the last three verses, verses 4 through 6 this morning. And I'd like to at least get some introduction in concerning the church at Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love or the remnant church. I don't know if I'm going to get there, but we'll, we'll try. And um, I'm just uh, really relying on the Lord to use me this morning and to communicate His Word because, as I said, I feel quite unprepared. So... Um, Let's see if we can uh, detect His grace this morning. Okay, Um, last week we finished up the counsel of the Lord as given to Sardis, the dead church. This was a church that had a name that it was alive, but it was dead in the eyes of God. We need to ask ourselves, do we have a name that we're alive to the world? Like so many of these famous preachers and TV personalities that claim the name of Christ here in America and transplant their false teaching all over the world. Do we have a name that we're alive like these people to the world, but in the eyes of God, we're dead? It's a question worth asking. But to the dead church, Christ gave a five-fold counsel. The key to an awakening spiritually from deadness is what Christ commanded the church here. Number one, to be watchful. Vigilance. To strengthen. Okay? To remember what you've seen and heard. To hold fast what you have. And to repent. And we talked about what that meant not only for the Sardis church last week, but for us as Christians endeavoring to do our Lord's will. As we move on to verses 4-6, through six, we're going to see that this fivefold counsel to the church as a whole, transitions into a threefold promise for the remnant, the faithful remnant, who would inevitably do and carry out the things Christ commands here. So we're moving from the topic of counsel from our Lord to a threefold promise for the remnant church. Verses 4 through 6, let's read this morning. Christ has warned the dead church that if they don't watch and repent and do these things, He will come to them as a thief. I mentioned how that didn't necessarily mean eternal damnation. Christ coming as a thief for His church, for His saints, could be a, uh, uh, a day of embarrassment for some. That doesn't mean eternity in hell, but shame. We don't desire shame in the presence of our Lord. We want to be amongst the, those that cast their crowns before His feet as portrayed in Revelation 4 and 5, not those that have nothing to offer. But anyway, verse 4, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. In verse 4, Christ is moving from talking to the church or addressing the church as a whole. And He's zeroing in upon the remnant. We've talked about the remnant. Sometimes the remnant is like the Philadelphian church. It describes the entire church body. Other times it's like in Thyatira. The rest that are in Thyatira as, as, as uh, Jesus spoke in chapter 2. Or maybe it's like here, the few that are in Sardis. Jesus confessed, there's a few of you who have not defiled your garments, who have not chummed it up with the world, who have not refused to fulfill the commitment you've made. And these are the ones He begins to talk to. These are the ones to whom He utters this threefold promise that even we today should find great comfort in. So at Thyatira, the, the, the remnant was spoken of as the rest. or In Greek, it means the remaining ones. Interestingly enough, the word sardis in Greek is a synonym for the word used translated rest to Thyatira. It means remaining ones as well. 
Um, but Jesus here is addressing the few. The rest whom God used to spark the Protestant Reformation over time had become just a few. And we can see this in history as the Reformation turned from the Gospel, the Word of God, and missionary zeal. It turned from those things and embraced political acceptance. The things of this world. And so the rest, unfortunately, became the few. Nonetheless, there was a remnant, as there is today in these times of apostasy. God always reserves unto Himself a remnant. It doesn't matter how apostate the church is, how persecuted the church is, or how small it is in the face of the world. God preserves or reserves unto Himself a remnant, just as He did in the days of Elijah, when Elijah thought he was alone as he fled from Jezebel and her threats to exterminate him. God said, I've reserved unto Myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So we need to be careful lest we start thinking we're the only ones serving the Lord, as so many churches do. You know, independent Baptists, I've got some of that in my background. You know, they get their doctrine correct most of the time. But then they start thinking they're the only true Christians out there and they develop a legalism and an arrogance and it becomes spiritual deadness. And as we'll see later to the church, the message, in the message to the church at Philadelphia, right doctrine and brotherly love go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. Right doctrine and holiness go hand in hand. One without the other is empty. Notwithstanding, there's a great promise here to the remnant. We need to be careful that we think we're the only ones, just like Elijah in his day, God reserves unto Himself a remnant. Sometimes don't, they don't go by the same uh, nomenclature that we do. Sometimes they may be called a church, they may have a denominational name different than ours. Okay, what's a denominational name anyway? You know, Baptist can mean a whole slew of things today in 2013. What does that even mean anymore? It meant something in times past, but what does it even mean anymore? There are Baptist churches in this county that don't preach the Word of God. There are Baptist churches in this nation that ordain women as pastors, that think it's okay to marry homosexuals, that are ashamed of their Baptist heritage. So is that Baptist? If that's what it is to be Baptist today, then don't call me that. Notwithstanding, there's a great promise here to the remnant, to the faithful remnant, a promise that we can embrace as we remain faithful to Christ's commission and to His Word. You have a few names in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. The faithful remnant, my friends, does not defile its garments. Period. Those garments may be tattered and worn, but they are not defiled or soiled with the world. So the idea that the remnant church can become soiled with the world and fall in love with the world is oxymoronic. It doesn't make sense. The remnant does not defile its garments. Oh, they can become worn through persecution and trial and tribulation, but not defiled. In fact, if you look at the little book of Jude right before Revelation in verse 23, or in verse, let's, in verse 22 and 23, it gives us two ways or two strategies for sharing the gospel with the lost. On some have compassion making a difference. That's the one everybody wants to focus on nowadays. They don't read verse 23. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Friends, the remnant hates a garment spotted by the world. It hates the defiled garment. It flees the defiling of its garments. So this remnant at Sardis had not defiled its garments. What did that mean? What does it mean to defile your garment? Well, we know that the Sardis church had a name that it lived to the world but in God's eyes it was dead, or in the eyes of Christ it was dead. So an element of, a def- of defiled garments, an element of meaning here with regard to a defiled garment has to be friendship with the world. We defile our garments as Christians when we become friends with the world 
And when we pay more heed to politics and the things of culture and society than we do to the revelation of God and His Word. And this is evident in the Sardis church period, historically speaking. The Reformation died when it gave more heed to politics and political favor than it did to the promises and the commissions of God's Word. So a defiled garment is friendship with the world. James chapter 4, verse 4 proclaims a very somber truth. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Now that message wouldn't get preached in a lot of churches today. In fact, that would be considered heresy or blasphemy in the American church today. The American church's understanding of love in God's eyes is a defiling or a defilement of our garments. You cannot be a friend of the world. Love for the lost is communicating God's truth, not concealing it or dissimulating it as Romans chapter 13 talks about. It's making friends with the world. There was a godly, righteous king in the history of Judah. His name was King Jehoshaphat. He had a godly father, King Asa. They were descended from King David. And Jehoshaphat removed the idolatry from the land. And he turned the people back toward God in the southern kingdom of Judah, much like his father began to do. However, he had a fault. And he was rebuked by the prophet of the Lord in 2 Corinthians. Chronicles chapter 19 for this fault. If you study the history there of Israel in Kings and Chronicles, Jehoshaphat made friends with the wicked king Ahab who ruled over the northern kingdom of Israel. They even went to battle together. And when they were trying to decide whether or not to go to battle, Jehoshaphat spoke up and said, well, we need to hear what a prophet of the Lord has to say. He showed a concern for the things of God and demanded that the Lord's prophet be given opportunity to speak. And of course, Ahab didn't like that and the, the prophet told them that they w- wouldn't win this battle. But Jehoshaphat allowed his son, Jehoram, to marry the daughter of King Ahab. And as a result, that ungodly bloodline came in to the line of David and tainted three kings so that they're not even listed in the bloodline of Christ in Matthew chapter 1 because they were more the son of Ahab than they were the son of David. And so Jehoshaphat's friendship with the world caused problems for the kingdom of Judah, even though he was a godly and righteous man that meant well. The problems were such that it even affected the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we see that as we cross-reference and study Matthew chapter 1. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verses 2 and 3, God's prophet has something to say to King Jehoshaphat who loved the Lord, who sought to live for Him, who did many things to further God and His truth, but yet was a little too chummy, a little too friendly with the world. Chapter 19, I'll just start in verse 1. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, or the prophet, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. There were good things in Jehoshaphat, but he was given stern rebuke. Should you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? That's a question we need to ask the church in America today. Should we be helping the ungodly? I'm not talking about preaching the gospel to them. I'm talking about chumming it up with them, coming alongside them, ignoring the offensive truths of the gospel, and helping the ungodly and loving them that hate the Lord. How many Christians fell in love with the presidential candidate Mitt Romney in this last election. He hates the Lord. He's denied that Jesus Christ, by virtue of His Mormon doctrine, is God, and that Christ is the only way to salvation. That's Mormon doctrine. Should we love them that hate the Lord? You think being a Republican and voting Republican is equated with being a real Christian? Let me ask you what the prophet asked the king. 
Should you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? What about those that want to come alongside and affirm the homosexual in his sin? Or want to affirm those that murder their unborn children in their sin? And chum it up with them, ignoring the offensive truths of the Gospel, which would bespeak true love. That's defiling your garments, my friend. That's defiling your garments. We are to love the world in the sense of communicating the Gospel. But friendship with the world is enmity with God. And you defile your garment before God when you're a friend to the world. The rebuke given here to King Jehoshaphat is a rebuke we need to hear. If we love our friends, if we love our family, if we love our job more than we love the eternal truth of the Gospel and the call of Jesus Christ upon our lives, then the Lord rebuke us as He rebuked the king here. The remnant at Sardis had not defiled its garments. Oh, they were tattered and worn, maybe stained in a few places, but not defiled. And because of that, Jesus says, "You, They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They are worthy. The color white in the Scriptures connotes purity, righteousness, victory, the heavenly state. Those that walk in white are worthy. Not because they are worthy in and of themselves, but because Christ was worthy. These worthy ones are pictured in heaven in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 5, the church is in heaven. It's not on the earth undergoing tribulation, and it's not spoken of again in that book till the end of the book. The church is in heaven with Christ because it's been raptured out prior to the tribulation. And we'll see that's a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gives to the church at Philadelphia. That they will not have to endure God's wrath in the world because of their faithfulness. But in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, these worthy ones speak of worthiness as they sing praise to the Lamb. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Not us. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. Personal. First person. The church. Standing in heaven before the throne. Raptured out. Thou hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests. And we, the church, shall reign on the earth. So, Those that walk in white are worthy because the Lamb is worthy. Not because they're good people. True believers, the remnant, understand that it's not right with God because it's it's good or it's worthy in and of itself or because of its own deeds. Those that are worthy who walk walk in white are worthy because Christ the Lamb was worthy. And only He is worthy to take possession of the title deed of the earth and to reclaim it as its kinsman redeemer. That's the picture here in Revelation chapter 5. Worthy because Christ was worthy. I find it interesting how so many that claim to be Christians, even some on their deathbed, to their last dying breath appeal to their own works. Well, I read my Bible. I'm a Christian. Or or I'm a good person. Or I went to church every Sunday. But then you have those that truly know the Lord. As death approaches, there's a different attitude from the remnant and the false convert. The false convert fears death. Fears it to the last moment. Always appealing to their own works, their own worthiness. But those like my own grandfather who died a few months ago, he wasn't afraid of death. He never appealed to his own works. His worthiness, he understood, was rooted in Christ's worthiness. That's the difference. Anybody that's always talking about what they're doing for the Lord and who they are and how good they are, they've got a heart problem. Because the true believer, the remnant, the few here at Sardis understand the source of their righteousness and that is Jesus Christ. There is no good that dwelleth within me. All Any good within me is because of Christ. Amen. To say otherwise is to defile one's garment. Verse 5, 
And this is where the promise, that threefold promise begins. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Not only the remnant at Sardis in that particular period of church history, but any that overcomes. What is an overcomer? Well, we keep going back to 1 John chapter 5 with each of these messages because an overcomer isn't a special type of Christian. Some are, some aren't. An overcomer is a genuine Christian. There is no other type of Christian. When I was riding my bicycle to Alaska years ago, Ricky and I pulled into this little town uh, of Stewart in British Columbia just on the Canadian side of the border that connected with Hyder, Alaska. Hyder, uh, Alaska is a weird town. It's more backward than any West Virginia town I've ever been to or any Eastern Kentucky or Western North Carolina town. It's stranger than Robbinsville, North Carolina, if you can believe that. But uh, Hyder is separated from the rest of Alaska. The only way to get anywhere else in Alaska from Hyder is by plane or to drive up through British Columbia and the Yukon hundreds and hundreds of miles. But we came into Stewart and needed a place to stay and there was a church there. And we heard that the, the pastor was a godly man. And so we went and introduced ourselves to him as Christians and asked if we could stay in the church a couple of days. And the question, first question he asked us was, what type of Christians are you? Which I appreciated and I responded, well, we're overcomers. We're born again Christians. And he said, well, great. That's the only kind of Christian there is. And I agreed with him. So it was encouraging. It was encouraging. Brother Fernie was his name. But 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 defines an overcomer. And we need to constantly be reminded of this as we study through these letters. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. A Christian is born again. Born again is to be born of God. And to be born of God is to overcome the world. You can't separate them. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. If you truly believe that Christ is the Son of God and you live by that dictum, by that truth, then you'll overcome the world by the grace of God. You won't defile your garment. You won't fall permanently into the pit of deceit that the world lays for us. The overcomer is a true believer. And friends, the true believer is always a remnant believer. Always a remnant believer. Not a state church like what was born out of the Reformation looked a whole lot like its Catholic mother. The true believer is an overcomer. He that overcometh will walk in white as Jesus promises here. Given a white raiment, a few... It says in Matthew chapter 22, many are called, but few are chosen. The church has always been a remnant. Always has. From the days of Jesus and His disciples, it was a remnant amongst the Jews, and today it's a remnant amongst the Gentiles. A remnant. Even the Philadelphia church, which is not condemned by Christ in any way, but praised by Him, and promised deliverance from the wrath to come, is a remnant sandwiched between the dead church of Sardis and the Laodicean lukewarm church of today. White raiment. What is this? What is it talking about here? He that overcometh shall be clothed in white raiment. This is a promise of adornment for the remnant. A threefold promise. We have a promise of adornment here. Later we'll see a promise of eternal security. And then finally, we'll see a promise of recognition by God as opposed to recognition by men. But here we have a promise of adornment. The white raiment. What is it? Well, Revelation chapter 19 defines it for us. In verse 19, 7 and 8, it's talking about the church. The marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife hath made herself ready. The wife of Christ, the bride of Christ is the church. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. That's what it means to be clothed in white. I believe this is a reference to a literal garment we will be given in Christ's kingdom. But it's a picture of the righteousness that the remnant has in Christ. My friends, righteousness cannot be earned in this life. The fallen sons of Adam cannot earn righteousness. 
A righteousness can only be imputed. It can be only be imputed by God through faith as a result of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When we think of Christ and what He came to this earth to do, we often focus mainly upon His crucifixion as a sacrifice for the sins of the world and His resurrection, proof that God accepted the sacrifice. Then we'll focus on His coming again to set up a kingdom, but we often forget an integral and important element of His work. And that was His life that He lived here. A life on this earth of active and perfect obedience to God. You see, if Christ hadn't been perfect, if He had not lived in active obedience to God's Word, He would not have been a worthy sacrifice. He would not have been a sufficient, perfect sacrifice, a substitute for sinful man. Christ's active obedience is just as important as His death, burial, and resurrection. Because without that, He would have been a blemished sacrifice. But because He was God, He could live without sin. Because He was man, He could pay the price for man, the guilty sinner, through His active obedience. So righteousness is imputed by grace through faith in Jesus Christ because of His righteousness. So our righteousness is Christ's righteousness and the white raiment is that righteousness of the saints. Someone turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. And then I want Revelation 19, 7 through 10. I just read it, but we're going to read it again. And then I want Revelation 19, 14. And then somebody look up Jude, verse 14. I want you to notice the order of events here and how this ties to the white raiment. The fact that the church or the remnant at Sardis is given white raiment, the overcomers, it ties this remnant into specific things that will take place when Christ comes to earth. Somebody read Romans 3, 21 through 22. The righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all that believe. Imputed righteousness. Do you understand? The righteousness of the saints is not earned, it's imputed. To impute is to declare. It's a judge that imputes a sentence to a criminal from the bench. It's God who imputes or declares us to be righteous based on Christ's righteousness through our faith. It's His declaration. And then He begins to conform us to that righteousness as we live and walk in the Holy Spirit. That's called sanctification. The imputation of righteousness is justification. And then glorification is when all that comes together in the kingdom of God. That's a whole other message we could get into. But the righteousness spoken of here is imputed righteousness through Christ. Revelation 19, 7-10. Notice the order of events here. Righteousness of the saints is the white linen given at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That marriage supper takes place while tribulation and wrath pours out upon this earth. It follows the judgment seat of Christ whereby the church is judged on the, uh, in terms of reward. Satan himself is kicked out of that marriage supper because he doesn't have a marriage garment. There's none welcome there but those clothed in the righteousness of the saints, which is righteousness imputed by God 
on account of Jesus Christ and His work. Somebody read um, Revelation 19.14. Notice the order of events here. So we've got the church in heaven at the marriage supper, the remnant, clothed in white raiment, the righteousness of the saints, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now what do you see in verse 14? Okay. After the marriage supper, Revelation shows us the coming of Christ at Armageddon. He comes on a white horse and He looks very much like what John sees in chapter 1. Not a weakling hanging on a cross. Okay, He comes back, splits the sky, splits the Mount of Olives, and the judgment begins, the second coming. But who is it that's with Him? We read that verse here, the armies in heaven, and a lot of people just read that and think, you know, Jesus and all His angels coming back. Because Christ does talk about coming with His angels in the Gospels. But this isn't a reference to angels here. The armies in heaven here are clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Who is that? Who's clothed in fine linen earlier in the chapter? The saints. Who's clothed in white? In Revelation chapter 3, church at Sardis. The remnant, the true church. That's, that's the church coming with Christ. That's the armies in heaven that come to conquer. We'll ride with Him. We'll fight alongside Him. We'll see victory with Him. Adorned in white. What a great promise. What a great promise. Jude chapter 14 confirms this. I mean, not chapter 14, verse 14. This was a prophecy uttered by Enoch prior to the days of Noah. Enoch was translated out of this world. A type of the rapture. He was translated out before God's judgment in the flood. A type of the church. Noah was preserved through the judgment. A type of Israel. When Christ's judgment come to this world in the last days, the church will be translated out like Enoch. And Israel will be preserved through, like Noah. It's interesting how the Scriptures work together. Types and anti-types. Jude verse 14, what does it say? And Enoch also, the seventh of Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of His saints. And what's the next phrase? To do what? Verse 15. To execute judgment upon all. To execute judgment. Who's coming with Christ? His saints to execute judgment. Even Paul said, you ought to be able to, to, to resolve differences in the church and not take it before the worldly and earthly magistrates. Don't you understand that the church has been appointed to judge angels? And yet you people can't even resolve issues in the church without taking it to court? Shame on you. That was his argument. The church has been appointed to rule and reign with Christ. Don't tell me there's no literal millennium. Don't tell me the church has been has replaced Israel and that all of this is just some ethereal mysticism, a single judgment, and we're going to be floating around in heaven like clouds. That's not true. This is literal truth here. Okay? The church has a special place in the program of God to rule and reign with Him. Just as the people of Israel has a special place, it's the channel whereby Messiah will rule over all the earth. Doesn't mean anybody gets saved any other way through Jesus Christ. Those that accuse someone like myself bearing a dispensational theology to believe that Jews get saved a different way than Gentiles doesn't know or understand dispensational theology or understand the literal plain truth of the Scriptures. Jesse, yes, sir. Gigi pointed out one thing in that last verse. With 10,000... No, 10,000s. And thousands of His saints. Not, you know, all through the ages, the church. Jesus said, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in that day, He'll prove it to the world when ten thousands of His saints come in judgment. What a blessing is the promise of adornment in the day of judgment. That's the interesting aspect of this promise here in Revelation chapter 3. That in the day of judgment, the remnant will be clothed. Those that are lost, those who find themselves without Christ, won't be clothed in the day of judgment. They'll stand naked and exposed. 
Naked and exposed. You see, the Word of God, as spoken of in Hebrews chapter 4, is a sharp, double-edged sword. It can divide asunder the soul and spirit, and it knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight. The Word of God is spoken of as a person here. I was accused of heresy by this young man who pastors in this community. He's a rank heretic anyway. Denies that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Believes the Bible is not the Word of God. All, that hell's not eternal. All of this garbage that's so hipster today in American churchianity. But he accused me of being a heretic because I made the statement that there's not a whole lot of difference between the written Word of God and the living Word of God. All you've got to do is look at Hebrews chapter 4 where the written Word of God is spoken of as a person. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, for all things are naked and open before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. John chapter 1, the Word was in the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. The written Word, the living Word, you don't have one without the other. So don't tell me you love Jesus, but you don't believe His Word. You're a liar. You're the ultimate hypocrite. The ultimate hypocrite. But what a blessing it is to be adorned by God in the day of judgment as opposed to being naked and exposed. In the book of Nahum in the Old Testament, it's a pretty interesting book. The love is God crowd, uh, the God is love, love is God crowd would not like this book. And that's probably why they never read from it or preach it. Nahum chapter 3 verse 5, look what the Lord says to those whom He is against. As opposed to His clothing of the church. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face. In other words, I'm going to lift your skirt up over your face. And I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. For the righteous in the day of judgment there is adornment. For the lost there is exposure. Shame, nakedness. God literally tells that wicked kingdom of Nineveh, I'm going to lift your skirt up over your face and show your shame to the nations. And that's exactly what God is going to do to the apostate church in the day of judgment. It's going to lift its skirt up over its face and show its shame to the nations. Naked versus being adorned. Revelation chapter 16 speaks of this nakedness as an opposite of what is promised here to the church, the remnant at Sardis. Verse 15, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. You see, you can have all the appearance of success and divine blessing, and yet be naked before God, not adorned in white raiment. The church at Laodicea, as we'll study later, is a prime example of this. Behold, thou sayest thou art rich, and increased with goods, and in need of nothing. But in reality, you are poor, wretched, blind, and naked. That's the American church today. Big sanctuaries, popular teachers, TV ministries, the latest strategies, the latest devotional books, the Lifeway bookstores, all of this stuff. The conferences, the conventions, all of this stuff is wretched, poor, blind and naked because it's devoid of the gospel and it's devoid of the of true righteousness which is the righteousness of God and Christ imputed to the remnant a promise of adornment in the day of judgment versus nakedness praise God for that praise God that's to the remnant that's to the remnant him that overcometh not only a promise of adornment but it says In verse 5, I will not blot out His name out of the book of life. The second aspect of this promise, eternal security. Eternal security. Many look at this passage, I will not blot out His name out of the book of life, and they wrongly see or interpret it as a reference to salvation that can be lost. Well, if God says He'll not blot someone's name out of the book of life, then that means He will blot some people's names out. So, salvation, you must be able to lose it. It's not secure. This isn't what's being said here. Anybody that comes to that conclusion is failing to interpret Scripture with Scripture. Just like people do in Hebrews chapter 6. They never do read verse 9 
and clearly see that Paul is speaking of something different than genuine salvation. Or in chapter 10, they fail to go back and read the beginning of the chapter when it talks about the nature of Christ's work, perfecting them, uh, perfecting forever those that are sanctified. Who are those that are sanctified? The ones Christ purchased on the cross. Okay? Those chapters don't teach salvation that can be lost. Those chapters are a warning to Israelites or Jewish people who are wavering between believing on Christ and going back or falling back on the Jewish law and sacrificial system. When you take that context out of it, you can come to all kinds of weird conclusions. And that's what happens when you fail to interpret Scripture with Scripture. The truth is, in this passage, this is a promise. It's a great promise of eternal security for the true believer. What is not being said here? What is not being said is that someone or anyone will have their name blotted out, or even that they can. What Christ is saying is that this won't happen. He's saying it won't happen. He's not saying it can or it will. He's declaring that His name will not be blotted out of the book of life. This is not communicating salvation that can be lost, genuine salvation. It's a promise of eternal security. For the overcomers, their name won't be blotted out of the book of life. Their salvation is secure. As it says in Hebrews 10, that Christ has perfected forever, once and for all, a specific point in time, them that are sanctified. Who are those that are sanctified? Those that were purchased by Him at the cross, once and for all. What a great promise of eternal security. Is the implication though that a loss of salvation is a possibility. I'm not convinced. Study the rest of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, I keep making reference to that. That's the chapter that everybody talks about referring from verse 26 on to a salvation that can't be lost. Look at verse 9. Then said He, Lo, I come to do Thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that He may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Are we sanctified by our works? No. We're sanctified by the offering of Jesus Christ once and for all. A.D. 30, 2,000 years ago on a cross at Calvary, outside the gates of Jerusalem in the land of Israel, once and for all. We are sanctified through that offering. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, one sacrifice, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. He's sitting at the right hand of God waiting for the day when his kingdom will come and his enemies will be made his footstool. Uh, expecting, that's talking about the future. It wasn't something that happened uh, in the past, and Revelation isn't something that was done by A.D. 70, as some people teach. That's foolishness. Verse 14, For by one offering He hath, listen, perfected forever them that are sanctified. Well, who are them that are sanctified? Who are those that are sanctified? Look at verse 9. I mean, verse 10. Those secured by the offering of Christ once and for all. So when you read that first half of Hebrews chapter 10, how in the world do you come up with the last half talking about salvation that can be lost? Not to mention what Jesus has to say in John. Not to mention what Paul has to say in Philippians. Ephesians chapter 1. Romans. Throughout the book. Here in Revelation 3, this isn't a warning concerning the impermanent nature of true salvation. It's a promise of eternal security. And I don't even think there's an implication here that salvation can be lost. Besides, what's the book of life? What's being referred to here? What's the book of life? Do you know that the Scriptures make reference to two different books in terms of the last days and the judgment? You have the book of life, that's spoken of in Psalm 139, Psalm 69, here. And then you have, in Revelation, toward the end of the book, you have what's referred to as the Lamb's book of life. Somebody look up Psalm 139, 16. 
And someone else, Psalm 69, 28. Psalm 139, 16. And Psalm 69, 28. One thirty nine sixteen, someone. In other words, David is saying, you saw me in my substance. This is talking about when he was conceived in the womb, the greater context. You saw my substance. It was imperfect as we are all born in sin, yet his substance was recorded in God's book. So those that are conceived are recorded in God's book. This is a reference to the book of life. Look at Psalm 69. Verse 28. The book of the living, the book of life. This is a reference. David in his imprecatory prayer is praying that the wicked, the enemies of God, will be blotted out of this book of life and not written with the righteous. So here we have two Old Testament references to the book of life. Now someone look up Revelation 21 verse 27. Revelation 21, verse 27. There shall be no wise, be no wise enter into anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, the day which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay, this is a reference to those that enter into God's kingdom are those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I would make the argument that this is something different than the book of life that's been referred to. It's referred to there in Revelation chapter 3 and in the book of Psalms. This is confirmed in chapter 13, verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him. This is a reference to the beast whose names are not written. Not written. That doesn't mean blotted out. But not written in the book of the life of the Lamb which was slain from the foundation of the world. So you've got this book, the book of life, that records the names of every soul ever born into this life. From that book, names are blotted out upon death. But for those that embrace God's salvation, whether it be as Abraham did through faith in the book of Genesis, or as we are called to do upon our repentance and faith in this dispensation of God's grace, those names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's a record of those that have been redeemed by God. So if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, it won't be blotted out of the book of life. It says that the judgment, the great white throne judgment, that the books, plural, were open. And every man was judged according to his works. You see, God's got books in heaven that record your existence. They record your, your works. That means your idle thoughts. Your, your uh, every idle word that you speak, everything you do in secret, and they record those that have been redeemed. So even if the argument could be made here that being blotted from the book of life is implied, it still isn't teaching the loss of salvation. Because if you look at the rest of Scripture, the book of life is a record simply of those that are born and live. Every soul from Adam on down. And as David prayed there, let them be blotted not out and not written with the righteous. That, the implication is that the, the righteous are written down somewhere else. And that David, even in his imperfect state, was written in the book of life when he was conceived. Psalm 139. And then we see here in Revelation that those that worship the beast, aren't, aren't, they aren't written at all in the Lamb's book of life. So if they're not written there at all, how can they be blotted out? So the book of life is a record of all people. You die without Christ, you're blotted out. You lose life and you embrace eternal death. You come to Christ, your name is not only preserved in the book of life, it's written down in the Lamb's book of life. Therefore, confirming 
life for you for all of eternity. I guess the lesson really here is this. You can have your name on a church roll and yet be lost and condemned. You can have your name on a church roll even after you're dead. Your name, people's name stays on church rolls. I don't know why. But be lost and condemned. You can have your name blotted out of God's book of life because you've rejected His salvation and you die in your sins. But for those who overcome a promise of eternal security, your name won't be blotted out. Instead of being blotted out of the book of life, it'll be transcribed with eternal ink in the Lamb's book of life. The book of the redeemed. In terms of eternal security, if you were to ask me what I believe, what I believe the Scriptures teach, I'm going to tell you this. I don't believe once saved, always saved. I don't believe that. I don't believe once saved, always saved. That's false teaching. Am I shocking you? But I believe in eternal security. You say, well, that's a contradiction. That doesn't make any sense. No. What is the doctrine of once saved, always saved? I'm talking about this doctrine in terms of what the church teaches. Once saved, always saved in the typical Baptist churches. Look, you come down an aisle, raise your hand or pray a prayer, repeat after me. That makes you a Christian whether you've repented of your sins or truly trusted Christ or not. And because you prayed that prayer, once saved, always saved. Just go on living your life. It doesn't matter. Once saved, always saved. Write the date down in your Bible and anytime you're in sin or you're doubting where you stand before God, just look at the date and everything will be a-okay. That's the doctrine of once saved, always saved in the typical Baptist church. It's rooted in repeating a prayer, raising your hand, and writing a date down in your Bible. And then it excuses those that would continue to live for the world and never show any fruit of genuine salvation. I don't believe in that. I don't believe someone who's repeated a prayer at a revival service, even if it was in, under a tent on sawdust, is saved just because they repeated the prayer if their life continues to mirror that of the world. Those are folks that were never saved in the first place. You're once saved, always saved, and going to get you into heaven. But I believe in eternal security. Eternal security is the biblical doctrine that those who repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ are new creatures. And those new creatures bear fruit because of Christ and His Holy Spirit. And those creatures, those new creatures are preserved by God and no man can pluck them out of His hand. Perfected forever. Names not blotted out of the book of life but written in the Lamb's book of life. Do you understand the point I'm trying to make here? Once saved, always saved as preached in America, the typical Baptist, Southern Baptist church in America is not the biblical doctrine of eternal security. There is no eternal security without repentance. There is no eternal security without being born again. And you can have your name on a church roll. You can walk an aisle. You can rededicate your life umpteen times. You can go to every camp meeting, sawdust, big tent revival they have in the county and die lost in your sins. Your daddy might even be a pastor. He might even be a biblical, God-fearing, Bible-thumping, remnant-body pastor. And you might die in your sins without Christ if you're trusting in your own righteousness and trusting in your own goodness instead of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have a promise of adornment, a promise of eternal security. If we as Christians can't offer anything to the world other than a hope-so salvation that can be lost, then we've got nothing different to offer than all the religions of this world. But the Bible says in John 5, 1 John 5, these things are written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. If we don't have a salvation that is secure in Christ, then we have nothing better than Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and Judaism in its rabbinical deadness. Got nothing different. The fact is, what we have, a living Savior, is far different from the world. A living Savior that saves, changes, and secures. Amen. Eternal security, a biblical doctrine affirmed here in Revelation when people that don't understand the Scriptures will say it's teaching the opposite. It's not teaching that at all. What a promise of eternal security. And then finally, the same will be clothed in white raiment. 
I will not blot His name out of the book of life, but I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. A promise of recognition. Adornment, eternal security, and recognition. And who is this recognition from? From God. Not from men, not from political leaders. The Reformation church became admired, enmeshed in political infighting. The reformers needed the backing of the German princes, of the King of England and these others to flourish outside of Roman Catholic dominance. And when that political favor was sought over biblical truth, the church became dead and withered away. And it needed a kick in the pants from the Holy Spirit, revival to bring it back to life, as we'll see during the Philadelphia church period, the great missionary age, the great age of revivals. But the remnant body, the true overcomer, obtains recognition from God. And that's far more important, far more eternal, far more meaningful than recognition by political leaders who are motivated by their own lust and pleasures. That's far greater than recognition by your boss who's motivated by his profit, not yours. Young people, that's far more important, far more lasting and enduring than recognition by your peers who once you graduate from high school, you'll probably never see them again anyway. The only person I went to high school with that I have any fellowship with is my wife. And I'm perfectly happy with that. You won't see us going to our 20-year high school reunion it's usually a drunk fest up here at Wayno's Silver Bullet. I don't want any part of it. I don't want any part of it. I ran into, we were out preaching at Hickory Live recently, and I ran into the father of one of my high school friends. He had a little bit too much to drink that night and tried to play the, like he was some big Christian. It's one of those situations where I determined it was best not even to bother. But anyway, uh, I recognized him, he recognized me, we began to talk, and I'd spent the night in his home many times, his Son was one of my best friends in high school, and he went on and on and on about how my son's earning $190,000 a year, and he's doing this and he's doing that. And then I remembered how we didn't have a relationship anymore because years ago I had confronted him with the gospel, and then all of a sudden I never heard from him again. This was after after high school, but uh, anyway, he he called me later and left a voicemail, and he told me, you know, I talked to my son and I told him what you were doing, and and how you were out preaching on the streets and all this, and he just said to me, Oh my. That was his exact quote. I think he was drunk when he called me. But I could care less if the people I went to high school with think good or ill of me. None of that stuff matters. It's transitory. But the remnant is promised recognition by God. Wouldn't you rather be recognized by God than by man? Even the most powerful men on the planet. When I used to live in California, I attended seminary out there in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. My wife and I lived there for a couple years. We loved it. But oftentimes we'd be out shopping or in a coffee shop and some famous movie star would walk in there. And everybody would turn their heads and look like, oh, I would purposely look the other direction. I would not look at them. I don't care. I could care less. If Robin Williams or Dave Matthews or anybody like that walks in the coffee shop, I would purposely look the other direction because it's just a man. And I don't care. But recognition by God. What an amazing thing to be known by God as Abraham was known. Abraham was called not the servant of God, but the friend of God. What an amazing recognition that God would recognize a man as his friend. That's what I covet. That's what we should covet. And friends, that's the promise to the remnant body of Jesus Christ. That's the promise to the church. Recognition by God. Christ will confess not just us as a person, but our names. He'll confess our names before His Father and before His angels. Man, what a promise. So many that claim the name of Christ don't even think about that. They don't even care. But it's an amazing promise. Mark 8.38 Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, that's the great majority of that which calls itself a church here in America, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. You see, there's a converse to that great promise. You're not ashamed of Christ here. You live for Him. 
you'll be recognized by Him before His Father. But if you're ashamed of Him, not only of Him, but of His words, I think of those Christians that say, I love Jesus, but the Bible is just written by men. If you're ashamed of Him and His words, the converse is true. He'll be ashamed of you before His Father. In fact, He'll say, depart from me, I don't even know you. So the question isn't, do you know Jesus? It's, does He know you? And will He confess you before His Father? For those that have tasted of His glorious salvation, that's a great promise. A threefold promise to the remnant. One of adornment in the day of judgment versus being naked. One of eternal security versus being blotted out of the book of the living and losing life unto eternal death. And a promise of recognition as opposed to denial. Those are great promises. Therefore, the message to the church of at Sardis concludes in this very appropriate way. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This proves, my friend, every time we see this invocation in the letters to the churches that these weren't just churches in John's day. They weren't just church periods in church history, but they're types of churches and Christians that exist at all times in this church age. And he that has an ear, you, me, him, her, let him hear. Not only hear, but do. And do what is commissioned and embrace the promises that are given. He that has an ear, let him hear to the churches. Paul the Apostle, and, and I'm going to conclude here, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, commended the Thessalonian church. They were poor believers. They weren't wealthy and influential like many of the Christians in Corinth. But Paul speaks of how they came in to that area and preached the Gospel on his missionary journey and he's recalling how the church was born and how those Thessalonians came to Christ. In chapter 1, verse 9, he says, "...for they themselves show of us what manner of entering we had unto you, and how you..." Number one, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Number one. And number two, to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. You see, the Thessalonian church turned to God from idols. And then instead of befriending or becoming settled in the world, they waited for the coming of His Son from heaven as pilgrims. Waiting for God's Son from heaven, living as pilgrims in this world is key to avoiding a state of spiritual deadness. The Sardis church didn't do that. In fact, the Reformation church began to think too much about the here and now and political favor in history, forgetting about the coming kingdom of Christ, forgetting about its pilgrim status on the earth. We must look for that day. We must keep our eyes on that eastern horizon. We must live as though Christ is coming today. That is the key to avoiding spiritual deadness. May, in order to not be like Sardis, may we be like this Thessalonians, turning to God from idols and waiting for His Son from heaven. And for those of us that wait, the true believer, the overcomer, there's deliverance from the wrath to come. There's adornment. There's eternal security. There's recognition by God. I've talked a little bit about the period of the Protestant Reformation and how God used the Reformers to do great things. We, we owe them much. We owe the Christians of that early Sardis church period a lot for the freedoms we enjoy today. And then the church became dead and true believers then had a threefold enemy. Not just the world and the Catholic church, but the world, the Catholic church, and the Protestant church. Some of the worst persecution that ever happened in the history of England against the true Christians happened under Protestantism. Protestantism. But anyway, there was a lot of remnant activity that took place during the Sardis period. Even in a church that became dead, there was a lot that took place. I think about the Scottish Covenanters that God used in Scotland. I think of the, the entire trail of the English Bible and how it came to be from the days of Wycliffe all the way up into the days of Tyndale and Miles Coverdale and Thomas Matthews. 
and uh, the Bishop Bible, the Great Bible, and those Puritan saints who were instrumental in giving us the King James Bible, that's remnant activity in the face of persecution. In fact, the entire story or history of the English Bible from its beginnings to the days of the King James Bible is a story of God's remnant at work. A story of God's remnant at work. Think of the French Huguenots who settled here in America even before the Spanish did at St. Augustine in Florida. How they fled persecution in Catholic France and came to America and were some of the first to share the Gospel with the Indians or the Native Americans and were later slaughtered by the quote-unquote Catholic Christians who came conquering, slaughtering them at Fort Caroline. The story could go on and on and on. But the moral is this. God has a remnant. He always has. He always will. And His remnant will have the victory. They will rule and reign with Him for all of eternity. May we be a part, not only a part, but an integral part of that remnant. Not for our glory, but for His alone.